to me, I think half of being good at coaching is accountability, both for the coach and for the person. If all you did was keep track of weekly goals and that's all you did, and you were a crappy coach, you'd do okay. <laughs> Just because that accountability partner does so much by itself. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Here's the thing. Any coaching is better than no coaching at all. But when it comes to supporting the transformation journey of an entire sales organization, a scalable coaching program is needed to improve competencies, change behaviors, and ultimately drive business impact. Our guest in today's episode is a sales enablement leader that has orchestrated several successful coaching programs in the past, and he'll share his secrets to making coaching part of an organization's culture instead of a random act of enablement. Please welcome Jonathan Carford, aka Coach K. Jonathan, welcome to the State of Sales Enablement. Great to have you. Felix, I'm excited to be here, man. I really appreciate and respect you so much. So thank you for me beyond this. Well, I also respect you and your track record, which was why I'm particularly keen to talk about coaching today and not the coaching basics that everybody's talking about, but actually delving deeper into the coaching subject matter and looking at what it takes to really scale coaching initiatives. But before we dive in, what is your background and what is one fact that people don't know about Jonathan? A little bit of history with me is that I have been in sales, like my dad owns a tire mechanic shop in Idaho Falls, Idaho. I grew up busting tires and sweeping floors and all that kind of stuff. And then eventually went to sell tires and wheels and did that for a while, ran the store. So love anything about cars. I kind of grew up with that. So it's kind of my thing. Since then, I've been in sales for all my life in some way, shape or form. But I was actually carrying a bag, quote unquote, for 15 years. I did enterprise, small business. SaaS stuff, physical products. I mean, you name it, I've sold it. That also means I've been coached by a lot of people and I've been trained in a lot of methodologies, a lot of systems. And I have a lot of experience that I use to know what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> because sadly, a lot of people didn't know I have any idea what the crap they were doing. So I, I learned very quickly of what not to do very early. But then I transitioned to enablement, been enablement space now for 10, 12 years, something like that. And I've either redefined a couple of programs or I've built enablement functions from scratch in a couple of startups, a couple of who went to 100 million within a couple of years. So I'm very used to high growth startup type of environments and also running international teams. So my experience is kind of eclectic. I have weird experience with industries. I've been across the board. There's nothing consistent about my career except for sales and enablement. That's about it. And on a side note, to add to this conversation we're having, I was also a life coach. So on the weekends, I would do business consulting and life coaching gigs along with music and loved it. Like I just had several clients internationally that I would talk to on Saturdays all day long about life coaching, emotional health coaching stuff. And then when I got into enablement, I always call enablement the life coach of a org just because I hear so much stuff that no one else hears because the enablement usually works with the entire revenue team, CSM, BDRs, AEs. And so you hear all the crap that everyone's talking about everywhere else. You're like, okay, but it's a lot of fun. And so I guess... Now that I've said all that, hopefully it gives you a little bit of insight on, on my background and where I came from. The interesting thing about me is I grew up with four sisters and I've probably seen every chick flick ever created ever. And if I haven't, I could probably tell you what the chick flick would be, even if I hadn't seen it, because they're all <laughs> are the same. <laughs> so it's so good. How about that? I love it. Which one is your favorite? 
uh, Meet Joe Black, only because... Have you seen it? Have you seen Meet Joe Black? <laughs> yeah, I have. Oh, my gosh. It's so awesome. Because there's that scene where Brad Pitt isn't dead yet, and they're walking away. You think it's going to be that classic, like, run back to each other and meet up, and he gets slammed by a car. It's so awesome. And I know it's morbid, but it's just like, why? It's just so like, unexpected. I was like, I was blown away. Great show. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, talking about coaching, I'm going to come back to those aspects of coaching that you've experienced as a recipient that weren't ideal as well. So first of all, just to set the scene, let's talk about how coaching is actually being delivered, right? And I see different maturity levels, which range from at the lower end of the maturity ladder, obviously no coaching at all. Then you have some coaching being delivered in a reactive way by enablement. And that's typically enablement, just joining meetings and joining calls and more or less randomly providing coaching to sales reps to try to elevate the skill level that way. And then there's the more mature level, which is a scalable coaching program where coaching is amplified by sales managers, right? So across the organizations that you've worked for and that you've been part of as a seller, what, what was the typical sort of maturity level that you've experienced? It was probably in between the first and second one you mentioned, so either non-existent or if it did exist, it was not formal. It was just done here and there, kind of half-assed. Nothing that could really build any momentum, sadly, I could say. Did you find that there were any frameworks being used, or was it also just providing feedback and suggestions for improvement? I did, but most of the time when I had, when I experienced it, it was because the one individual I worked with had the framework, but it wasn't an organizational thing. It was because they had been through coaching of some kind, but it was not consistent. So if I changed managers and went to someone else, they would have coached me, quote unquote, in an entirely different way. So there's no consistency. Right, right. So it was just absolute luck that you had somebody who actually had some methodology behind it and actually had a framework that they were working towards too. Yeah. Have you ever seen an approach work where the only coaching provided came from enablement? And when I say, have you seen an approach work? What I mean by that is, have you ever seen it work at scale and really shift the needle at certain metrics, especially in terms of self-methodology adoption? No, only because it's just a people problem. Like most enablement teams, you have one enablement person per 20 or 30 sales reps. So like, it's almost impossible to, that'd be your full-time job for the enablement. And most enablement people have other stuff to do besides just coaching. Not that it's not important, but they have other things they have, they're responsible for. So no, I don't think it's possible to scale at a bigger level. And that's coming from me who I supported, you know, in a startup, I started with 15 sales reps, 10 CSMs and five BDRs. And by the time I left, we had 20 BDRs, 40 CSMs and 50 sales reps. And I could barely keep up with everybody. I had a, I only worked with the people who I felt like needed the most help. Usually the bottom performers and the top ones, I couldn't, I just focused a lot on the middle ground just to make sure I could move them up as much as possible. Mostly just because of time. The biggest key I think is being able to create that consistent methodology, framework, method, process, whatever you want to call it across the sales managers, because they should be having one-on-one with their team anyways. So you might as well have that be a portion of their one-on-ones they can consistently give as those coaching feedback mechanisms. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the only scenarios where I have really seen it work from a capacity point of view is in smaller startups where there is already an enablement function, 
but because of the size of the business, they're not yet busy enough to be able to fill their day with other things, right? Yeah. So it would actually be, from my point of view, if I, and I work with a lot of different sales enablement teams and we work as a consultant, but if I would start working with a sales enablement team and I would see that they have a lot of time for coaching sales reps, I would actually see that as a red flag and especially also for their standing within the organization, right? Because, yeah, as you said, it's not scalable and it's probably a reflection that the capacity of the team isn't properly and strategically used from the business. Yeah. Well, even on the other side of it, most of the time, and this is just me being an ex-salesperson, being in enablement, I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a coaching session where, you know, I had a lot of resistance from someone. I eventually asked them, like, are you resisting getting coaching from me and tell me why? And they always say, I know you've been in sales for a while. I know I've seen your numbers, but you haven't sold in my industry. You haven't sold my product. You haven't sold this business. There's always some reason why there's a respect level that's not there. And I have gained it in every place I've gone or I've worked, I should say. But it's hard to win that, which is why, again, another reason why to leverage other people in that conversation is because sometimes you either have to use another top rep or the manager or someone that they have respect for until you build their own credibility so you can make sure they know you you know what you're doing. But at least for me, starting off in a team where they had 20 people already existed before I did, I had to build that respect. Even though I had all sorts of numbers behind me showing, I know what I'm doing. Like, I, I know how to do this. It didn't matter until I could... Uh, you know, just take the time they needed to trust me. So it's a bit off topic, but nonetheless, for any enablers that are entering a new industry, what would your tips be to actually earn that respect if it's not there from the get-go because the enabler might not have operated exactly in that space that those sellers might have had careers in in the past? Personally speaking, and this is, I just want to make sure anyone listening out there, I don't believe it's necessary for you to be an ex-salesperson to be a good coach. Like I just use a sports analogy. There are a lot of good coaches who never played a game in life, yet, but they know the game itself enough to be able to coach it. So I don't believe it's required to be a salesperson before you can coach. But a couple of things I would say that makes a big difference is one, speak your intention. Like I'm a big fan of saying, being very clear of what your intentions are. If I go into a coaching session I t and I tell someone, my intention is to help you. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to tell you you're crappy. I'm not here to get you fired. I'm not here to do anything else except for to help you perform and make money. That's it. So as long as you know that I'm here for that reason, anything I suggest is for the express purpose of you making money and succeeding. So are you okay with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, Jonathan, you haven't worked in my industry. No, you don't work in my industry. Don't help me, please. And you know what's funny is that the top reps, the guys who didn't need any coaching at all, in my opinion, were the guys who were like, I never get coaching. Please coach me. Like, tell me what I'm not seeing. They want the coaching. Whereas a lot of the middle to lower performers, they push back on coaching, which I always find interesting to me. Anyways, the point is, is that if I have to, at least at the company I'm referring to, for the first three months, I had to always, when I go into coaching session, I did 20 or 30 of them a week. Every single time I'd say, my intention is this. And I always had to repeat over and over again. So by the time I was done in three months, they're like, yeah, I know you're here to help me. <laughs> they, they could say it for me, but it's not just speaking the intention. It's following through with it. Like, I try to be a very genuine person in how I come across. People get, especially in a coaching situation, they get if you're coaching you because you want to appease your own ego of how smart you are. I did a course for the Sales Enablement Collective. I don't know if I can say that word. I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> Not a competition. We'll bleep it out. We'll bleep it out. I did a course on sales coaching. In there, that's one of the things I talked about was, I want to share a story with this that kind of goes along with this. That's okay. Yeah. I'm a musician and a guy that I love is Paul McCartney. And one of the things he talked about when he performs is he said that there's two types of performers, those who perform 
to get energy from the audience and to suck it out of them. And they're selfish in what they do. And those performers who give back in their entire performance is all like giving to the audience, making them the star, you know, not ego. It's not about me. It's about you. How can I make your experience good? To me, it's the same thing with coaching. If I can walk into a somewhere, even if I had no sales experience whatsoever, but I, my total intent and purpose was I am here to help you be successful. It's not about me. It's not about my ego. It's not about showing you how smart I am. It's about helping you to become as successful as I can. And I follow through with that. You'll gain people's respect very quickly because you're, again, if you're genuine and if you actually fall through with your intention and any suggestions you do give, even if it's wrong, will be forgiven because they know you're just trying to suggest it because you want to help. So anyways, that's what I would say to anyone who's wanting to tap into that coaching field of any kind is just always start with your intention and make it clear. That makes it a lot easier. And then secondly is just data. The more you can use the data on your side, like most salespeople or even CSMs, BDRs, whoever, they don't always have the time to look at the numbers all the time. And if they do, looking at the big stuff like, what's my revenue this month? They don't care about all the other close ratios, blah, 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 all that stuff. So if you're able to use the data that you have the time to kind of deep dive into before, then you can go into like the sales stages or you can go to the NPS scores or whatever it is, whatever team you're working with and just say, okay, I'm noticing that from discovery to demo, you have a 40% close ratio, but then from demo to proposal, it goes down to 10%. Obviously there's an issue here. Let's take a look at it. That data brings a lot of credibility. And again, trust, because you're not just flinging it saying, I have a feeling that you might have an issue here. It's like saying there's data suggesting you have a problem from this step to this step or whatever the KPIs are pointing to. But that's one thing you can use as another thing to build trust and credibility is just finding the things they don't have time to find. Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you say. And I, I guess that also goes to show that based on your approach and being really systematic about approaching coaching and also approaching enablement, that systems thinking and any sort of frameworks that you're able to utilize are transferable across industries most of the time, right? And I think that's the beauty of enablement and probably also a myth that is worthwhile busting is that you don't always have to operate in the same industry, right? Like you're yep. a performance consultant, so to speak, that is able to operate across lots of different industries. And I guess as long as you're structured in your approach and really have that performance focus and, as you said, the data to back your recommendations and your approach up, I think it is very feasible for a lot of enablers to switch industries and maybe even leave SaaS. Who knows? Weird, right? <laughs> it comes across as a bubble every now and then. I think some people are afraid to leave it and join other industries that might not be as sophisticated in the enablement space, but which very well would benefit of a more sophisticated approach. Yeah, I've been in my enablement career. I've been from, I went from Franklin Covey, which was a consulting, but even with Franklin Covey, I worked with people who were, I can't say the names of the companies, but we went from, gosh, manufacturing to engineering to real estate to all over the place. And, and yet the principles always applied. And then I personally have gone from transportation to retail, to security, to digital communications, all in SaaS. So it's like the industries all shift and vary. But in my opinion, like in your course, you talk about how there's a buyer's journey and there's the other side, the customer side. Of course, having experience in the, in the industry is going to help shorten that learning phase. But at the same time, it's like whenever I go into a new business and I haven't had experience in the industry, I almost feel like I'm stronger having other experiences because I'm like, okay, I have a very good idea. I've dealt with some pretty complicated buying cycles. This can't be more complicated than financial institutions or whatever the case it might be. And when I'm able to bring those strengths with me, 
it makes it so, even though I don't know the specific buyer's journey, at least I know in general what I'm looking for, you know, because I've done it five times in other industries. So I want to shift gears and get really tactical here and specifically talk about what is involved in actually rolling out a larger scale coaching program. So let's start from zero. Like, what's the very first thing you would do? Well, I might have to have you define what large scale is just because... Does that mean like a team of 50, 500, 5,000? Like obviously that changes based on <laughs> what you're dealing with, you know? <laughs> so let's go with 500. And you, the goal is to have it basically humming at business as usual and sales managers essentially identifying weaknesses across their sales reps and coaching to support them in developing those skills that are lacking. So I actually did do this for a team of 500 internationally a couple of years ago. So I'm going to tell you what I did and how it works. So yeah. Great. The challenge was the time, both the regional sales directors and the localized sales managers, each sales manager had a team of five to 10-ish, like that. And then there was 10 regional directors who all reported to me. Like, it wasn't just me. I was supporting enablement. Like, they actually reported to me, which is, it was a weird, how they set up was weird because enablement doesn't usually have salespeople report to them, but I did. So it was a little bit different deal. But I would have done it the same way, even if I didn't have the structure. So anyways, the sales managers did not have a lot of time because they were responsible for like a lot of P&L, a lot of accounting, a lot of other stuff. And so me adding on a training mechanism would have been over the top and they would have felt overwhelmed. So instead, I did something similar. Kind of we did at Franklin Covey. I made a facilitator program where it was the sales coach of the unit, but they became not like a number two. Like each place had a main manager and then assistant manager. I made the number three. So this person was the number three person to kind of deliver my content. This person was usually the top, three to five reps. And I always ask the team saying, who does the team respect the most? Who's also a good performer? Because I want to have that credibility and a person who's a good relationship skills. So I had a list of all the people, which was there's 50 different teams-ish. And all those 50 teams, I had 50 names. And those 50 names came to work with me. I trained them directly along with all the regional directors and said, okay, here's how we're going to be doing this. I had to have a system to be able to track it. Now at the time, I didn't have anything fancy. We didn't have some sort of crazy SaaS product to do it with. So we had to use, I had to use Google Sheets. I created a Google Sheet from scratch for all of them that they all had their own tab in it. They went and just uploaded their their details every week that went to a mother sheet. It was a crazy thing. Good, thank heavens I had my MBA so I knew what the heck crap I was doing. But they had to enter in their stuff. I did it all for them. Like I, I tried to make it as easy as possible. So all I had to do was go in, put some notes in, put the, some numbers, and then it pop it over on mine. And then I said, okay, every week for this next month, here are the things you're going to be doing. And we kind of mimicked a system I did before, but it's just a very simple, try to figure out where the strengths are, where the weaknesses are, and help build on the strengths more than the weaknesses, just because that's another thing I can talk about, but I won't get into right now. So we had the system so we could track all the one-on-ones. I picked the person who was going to be, who's going to be responsible for that. They came to work with me for once a week for the first month. And then we went to once every other week, and then we finally went to once a month. And then we started tracking the performance of every single store. And I made it a competition so that every location or team was basically trying to see how they could compete against themselves, but who could beat their own number better than someone else. Does that make sense? Right. Because some teams, like, it's not easy for a small business team to compete against enterprise as far as deal size. That's just not fair. But it is fair to compare themselves against who they were six months ago and then say, okay, who can ever beat the 10% over a year ago? That's the number to beat, right? So I made a competition out of it and like the teams would win prizes and that kind of stuff. We had a lot of fun with them. So systems, the people, the framework, I told them what I wanted them to have them do. And then the, 
Google Sheet would have all the, there's four things they looked for every single week. They asked every single person and we tracked it for the first six months. And then after six months, I came back to them and said, okay, guys, here's where we are performing based on last year. And every single one of them were like 20% over where they were before. Wow. They were smashing it only because, and it's not because I'm amazing. It's because they had the permission to actually focus on and to use their talents the way they could, because they would have been helpful anyways, but it wasn't like a organized structure, but they saw some major advancements and confidence in the team because most of the team never had coaching before. I would go out and coach them once a year, but I am the person who's going to say once a year coaching is not enough. You need consistency. You need the reminders, your habit building. So we saw a major progression. The cool thing was, even after I left, that program still exists. They report up to the regional people versus me, but that's what I wanted to have happen was create a system that I could step away from and still have it work. So even if the person who was actually doing it left, someone else could step in, they had all the systems ready, everything's ready to go, and they just pick it up and go. You mentioned that the people that you identified as coaches and actually delivering the coaching to the rest of the team were actual sales reps that had that combination of high performance and respect from the sales team. Is that correct? Yes. So what was the response initially? Was everybody instantly on board or did some say, hey, I also have a day job, like this is not really my role. This should be the manager or this should be you guys from enablement. Yeah. I kind of incentivized them to be this. So they weren't just doing it for the good of their own hearts. Like I told them, if you can get your team to perform at a certain level, I will bonus you. Like this is part of your deal. I had someone tell me actually once, and I love this concept of you will get what you incentivize to do. And I've thought about that a lot in any place I've been at. So these people, they didn't get like a, a manager's bonus like the other people would, but I did give them a bonus based on performance. I'm like, if you can get this team to go over this number, I'm going to bonus you this amount or X percentage or whatever it is. So because of that, they were very much on board with, with helping me because they got paid to do it. They got extra money they wouldn't have not had before. That was number one. Number two was this particular team was one where my function didn't exist really. It did, but they didn't do anything like I was doing before. So they were hungry for training and for help. They just didn't know that it was going to be coming from themselves. <laughs> I gave them the framework of what to do, but they're the ones delivering all the content and really making it hum. So it was more of just giving them permission to do that. And I think that's what really set them apart. And in my opinion, like there's this weird dichotomy with coaching where it's not always easy to get feedback from people. It's not always easy being a coach, but people love to progress. We have universities and all this other stuff. You have your course, like people, I love to progress. And so if you give people that chance to progress or give them a way to do that, it's always a positive thing. And that's how I pitch it saying, this is how we can progress your career by doing this. And I'm going to bonus you. In order to specify the bonus and create that framework around that, like, did you come up with that yourself or did you collaborate with the people that look after the compensation plans for the sales team? Yeah, I did. I went over with my boss and then my guys below me. So the regional directors bought off on it and so did my boss because obviously he runs my budget. So I had to make sure he was cool with it. But yeah, I got everyone's input first. I pitched the idea. It's like, here's what I want to do. And I just pitched the idea to them of like, hey, you're going to get more, you incentivize and I know we can do this. There will always be people who want to help just because you ask them to help, but I wanted the program to stick. And it's not going to stick unless there's some sort of momentum behind it because coaching is not always easy. And so if three or four months down the road, someone gets over the honeymoon stage of being excited about coaching and they're like, this kind of sucks. I want them to be excited about it still because they just got a huge check the month before because they killed it, whatever the case is. That gets you a little bit more excited about doing it through the hard times. 
Now, when it comes to actually identifying the areas that you wanted to improve and coach towards to, like, how did you go about identifying those? Did you work with a capability framework and created benchmarks across the entire sales team? Or was it more pragmatic than that? For the KPIs? So we had, as a company, I mean, we obviously had company-wide KPIs that everyone was aware of as far as the numbers you had to hit and that kind of stuff. But for me specifically, I had them broken down by team. Because every team was different in what they were weak or strong in. It's because it was international teams. I had two, three teams in Mexico. I had four or five teams West Coast. I had different teams in Canada. And it was just all over the place. And not every one of them had the exact same KPI. So I went with the regional director. I said, hey, guys, here's what I'm seeing. This is what I'm going to suggest. I want to have your thoughts on what KPIs you feel like would be the ones to fix or focus on and break it down by team. So I could see like, is it a closing ratio? Is it average sales price? Is it whatever KPI it might be? And so we identified by the team. And that's what the coach coached to was that specific KPI along with all the other sales skills. But the whole point was, and I gave them the bonus on, your KPI is, let's say, average sale amount. If you can move this by whatever percentage, I'm going to bonus you this much. And that changed by coach by team. So I hope that makes sense. But I really try to customize it because, again, if you're talking to a team of 500, no matter what team you have, SaaS or whoever, you're going to have different layers and different sections. I want to make it as applicable to, as possible because the challenge would be if you try to incentivize an enterprise rep the same way you do a small business rep, as far as specific KPIs, it usually doesn't work the same because they're two different games. So I want to make sure it's applied to them personally so they can feel that motivation they need to feel. When it comes to the kickoff session that you had with the different teams, what was the specific content and that you spoke about in those kickoff sessions? Because you mentioned you had that ginormous spreadsheet that everybody was working towards too. <laughs> yeah. What were the things that you talked about in those kickoff sessions to make sure that A, everybody buys in, obviously closely connected to those bonuses that you spoke about, but also to make sure that people are excited about it and that that initiative really kicks off with a bunch of motivated coaches? Well, before this happened, we had some pregame stuff happening. So obviously the coaches have already been approached. They already been pitched the idea by their manager and regional managers. So they've been primed up for it. And so when they met with me, I wanted to be the source of training for it, mostly because the stuff I was training in, the team hadn't been trained on at all. And not because of anyone's fault. It's just we haven't had a chance to re-roll it out. So this is part of me rolling out the new methodology. It was using this as a way to do that. So I wasn't only training the coaches, I was training all the managers and I was training all the regional directors so that everyone's on the same page with what we're trying to accomplish. That was my enablement side coming in, but it helped that I was also their boss saying, you have to do this now. <laughs> anyway, so I kind of mixed some things around. We did a simple version of Bant slash MedPick along with, I'm a Franklin Covey guy, so I mixed some of the helping clients succeed along with some 40X material. And I know it sounds like a lot of methodology stuff, but I'll tell you very simply what it was. I like to mix things together and kind of customize it based on where I'm at. But the point is, I don't like talking theory. I like talking applications. So what I did was, obviously, I had the spreadsheet. Part of the training was just rolling out and saying, okay, you all know you all have different things you're being bonused on, but here's where we're going to track all of your coaching is in this sheet. I showed them very quickly how to do it. That wasn't the first thing I did, obviously, because that'd be a boring way to start. But I, I rolled out the first thing of saying, hey, here's what we're going to do. I'm excited to roll this out. We're going off this methodology. Let me tell you what you're going to be winning first. The competition got them excited. And kind of, you know, had the teams compete against each other and just said, hey, you're going to get bonus not only on how you improve your team, but also how you stack rank against the other 50 teams, which was a lot of fun to kind of pitch that and push. And then after that was just going into methodology, which 
the challenge I had was that not everyone was native English speaking. So I had to make it very simple, but yet hopefully good enough because half of them were Americans, the other half were not. So I talked a lot about fulcrum. Fulcrum's where you have to move a big thing and you put like a small rock and you have a stick and you have to move it, you know, instead of you trying to push or heave a rock, you use a fulcrum to gain some leverage and to move it. I said, okay, guys, we have a massive revenue goal we have to hit. We're going to focus on the Plato principle and the fulcrum, which means that if you want to do the 20% of things that's going to move the mountain, like what energy can we expend on these things are going to make the biggest difference. And so there was a pattern among all the teams of KPIs that were similar, one of which was average sales price. I said, okay, if we use this, I train them on a new methodology. They were like, they did a basic high-low, philo scenario where they try to pitch the highest stuff first. I'm like, we're going to change a little bit differently. I want you to try the middle and work up instead of the dissension model where you try the highest and go down. I've been in a lot of places where SaaS, retail, transportation, all sorts of stuff, a lot of people start high. And I'm not going to say it doesn't always work because sometimes it works really well. It just depends on your clientele in the market and all this sort of stuff. But in this particular circumstance, my gut was, there's no data telling me this. I was just like, this doesn't seem right after me watching a customer experience several times with lots of different teams. Like, I just don't think this is clicking. Anyway, so we, I, I changed the idea methodology around doing a Bant version around a middle tier type of pricing because what was happening was we were pitching high stuff all the time, trying to anchor it. And then they'd always usually sell the lowest. And then our average sale price suffered because of it because they're trying to save the sale from a high pitch. And I was like, oh, you guys. So instead we're pitching a middle one and more often than not, we got the middle one because we'd pitch that along with the highest and lowest. We had three different tiers. And we usually hit the middle more often than we did the highest, which is funny because that, and then it bumped it up 20% by itself. So that was one way of just kind of changing the methodology. And we coached to that along with basic things like how do you close someone? What's the buying signals? How do you know the market? How do you find pain? Like just some of the basic stuff that they had never been trained on. Crazy. So I was just trying to make sure that we're all speaking the same language. We're all looking for the same stuff. And that we can keep each other accountable on what we're working towards week to week to week to week. So that the next week we can say, hey guys, we've done great here. We got to shift this a little bit and then move forward from there. So for me, the first month was all building the foundation of like, what's the basic methodology we're going for. Then after that, it was a lot of success stories of saying, okay, I'm going to have team coach of team 25 come on and talk to me about this last month. What worked well? Tell me about it. Let's celebrate you. And after a while, I made it more about them. And I didn't say much at all because it was them talking about the methodology and the principles versus me always being the one talking about it. I don't want to be, I don't want it to be the Jonathan show. It needs to be their show. So I tried to leverage them as much as possible to reemphasize what we're trying to teach. The bonuses that you mentioned should have given a lot of motivation, obviously, but there would still be coaches normally that are willing, but not able, right? And that might have different reasons. Like, how did you make sure that you maintain pace and maintain quality in those coaching sessions of those different teams? Did you have regular check-ins with the coaches? Did you have a specific ongoing training for them? How did that work? Yeah, the training I was talking about, the once a week and then once every other week and then once a month, that was with all the coaches. So with all the coaches and the managers and the team directors, there was about 100 people. It was a pretty big group. And then the regional directors were the ones who obviously would help me keep the update with KPIs and let me know what teams, because you could see pretty quick after a couple of months which ones were progressing well and which ones were suffering. And there were some times where a coach would have like a personal thing going on and couldn't really focus the way he wanted to because of something at home. Other times they just weren't good at coaching. And so it was usually me and their regional director or manager coming to them and just saying, okay, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And we usually do that after we get some feedback from the team of saying, 
how do you feel like this coach is doing with you? I wanted to see how the team felt about it first. And we didn't come to Adam and say, hey, you suck. It's more of saying, how do you feel? Where are the results at? I know you see on because we used to share the stack ranking to everybody. So no one was, it wasn't unknown of where they stood. So people who were low knew they were low. And it was more of an approach of like, I'm here to help you. Just like I would tell them, the coach, like, I'm here to help you. I want to help. What's been the struggle for you? What seems to be a problem? They tell me whatever problem they might have. And it's really getting clear with them saying, do you really want to do this? And if you do, I'll work with you. If you don't, then tell me now, I'm going to find someone else to replace you. And sometimes they take me on and be like, I'm just not, I'm not feeling it. I want to do my own thing and focus. It's stressful for me for whatever reason or because of a personal problem. But most of the time, I'd probably say 80% of the time, they'd say, I want to do this. Like, I want to learn how. Again, because of the bonuses and because they want to progress. And so I would work with them one-on-one to get them going. And they, because of their own desire, would get to where they need to be and succeed. It's probably also the key to what you mentioned earlier when you asked me what sort of scale we're talking about. Yeah. When the coach is being coached, that's probably where you get the scale and where you can then multiply that, right? Like if we're talking about sales organizations with thousands of sellers, suddenly then you need a coach for the coach that coaches the coach, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been in, I mean, Covey was an example. We had a massive team. I know those other teams are much larger. Like Salesforce has a humongous team. Even if they laid off half of them, they still got a huge team. It's like, you have to be really good at it or at least have some way. To me, I think half of being good at coaching is accountability, both for the coach and for the person. If all you did was keep track of weekly goals and that's all you did, and you were a crappy coach, you do okay. <laughs> Just because that accountability partner does so much by itself. So if all I did as a coach, I had never sold before in my life. If all I said to a salesperson was, I'm keeping you accountable to the goal that you're going to set, and that's it, and my manager did it, and their manager did it, and all we did was keep each other accountable, like that alone would be huge. But that one simple thing doesn't happen in one-on-ones. It doesn't happen with me and most of my my bosses that I've had, they don't ask me like, what's your weekly goal this week? And then they don't write it down and keep me accountable. Like it's the basics of a relationship that you're working with. And to me, I'm like, why not people just doing the basics? But it is what it is. On that note, for those enablers listening today that don't have a scalable coaching program in place in their organizations, what would your recommendation be to one step they can take today to fast forward their journey to a scalable coaching program? I'm going to tell you things to do and things to not do. How about that? Number one thing is that if you want to scale coaching, you need to become very clear on what that means to you. What does coaching mean? And can you show that to whoever's going to be coaching? Because most of the time, people think they know what coaching is, but they've never really experienced this. So when, they, when you tell them, hey, go coach your person on this thing, they're thinking something totally different than what you're thinking. So become very clear, this is what coaching is and how I'm going to show you how to do it. And whether or not you have to give them like a five-question script, you have to give them every time they give us a coaching session, just be clear on what you mean by coaching. That's number one. And then two would be have some way to keep it accountable or trackable. Like I said, Google Sheets is not ideal. I had to do it with a team of 500 people because we had, but there's a lot of different systems you can use for accountability. But even if all you have is something like Google Sheets, accountability is a massive factor. Performance proves when you keep people accountable it automatically just happens. And if it doesn't, there's other issues you need to talk about because it means that someone's not willing to be coached and that's a larger conversation than the coach could probably handle. But that's number two. Number three is you have to have leaders involved, both people above you and below you. Again, the leaders will probably say they know coaching is important. 
but then they've never really experienced it either. <laughs> so it's just making sure they know what you're trying to accomplish as well. So those are the top three things I'd say to do. Things to avoid is kind of the opposites of that, but the biggest thing is lack of follow through. If you say you're going to roll out a coaching program and then not do anything, or you roll it out for a month and then all of a sudden just disappears because no one's doing the accountability piece, that's a problem. And then same time, you want to show people how not to coach. Just like you want to show them how to coach, you want to show them how not to coach. Because a lot of times people have received coaching in the way that's not supposed to be coached. <laughs> that's not how you do it. <laughs> and then lastly, I would say become very good at questions. And, and remember this, hopefully you can remember this, is that good coaches are not consultants. They don't tell you what to do. They don't say, you need to do this, 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 this. They're really good at asking questions in a way that makes the other person think about what they're doing. You want to think about what question can I ask to draw the answer out of the person I'm working with? Because that's what I want. I don't want to provide them the answer. I want to pull it out of them. How do I bring out the answer in them to help them see their own amazing self? If you can become really good at that, and again, I have a course on it. Felix, I know you have stuff on it. There's a lot of materials out there. But if you can remember that, those three things will be huge for you to understand and also avoid so you can be clear on it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you for being so generous with sharing your experience. If people want to connect with you online and continue the conversation around scalable coaching, where can they find you? Right now on LinkedIn, my profile is JMKMBA. I'm also called Coach K, but you can get me on LinkedIn. I, I always read every single email I get. I may not respond to it if you're spam, but if you're not, I will respond back to you. So there you go. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement. However your go-to-market team is structured to shepherd the customer down that journey, that's how enablement should be structured too, is to support those efforts.